The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket pre-sales to live events, monthly Q&As with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you. Hi, this is Glenn Lowry. You have logged on to The Glenn Show. Uh, we're at Substack. We're on YouTube. I'm Glenn Lowry, teacher at Brown University. I am the Paulson Senior Fellow at the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research in New York City, which sponsors The Glenn Show. We're with Jamie Beeman, James Beeman, and of course, my conversation partner every other week, John McWhorter. Jamie is an actor uh, and also an observer of the cultural scene uh, on stage. Uh, and I concerned observer to the extent that woke ideology is wreaking havoc in his field of study. But let me not put words in his mouth. <laughs> and John is a man who follows the arts, the music and the theater and the musical theater and all the rest. Uh, and uh, we're going to have a conversation with uh, with James. John is going to chair. John, why don't you take over and introduce your old friend and uh, we'll get us get ourselves underway here. Well, folks, Jamie, James, I can't help but say Jamie, is um, by all my, <laughs> my college friend. And we were friends and roommates. We, um, this is our reunion um, after not having seen each other since 1983. And oh. I wanted to bring Jamie on because we have been in touch um, on social media. And he has some stories to tell about what's going on in the world of theater. And I'm hearing about this sort of thing practically every week myself because I'm a, you know, I'm an actor or musician, Mom K. And so I really do care about these sorts of things. We've already seen what's going on with um, classical music. And so now, Jamie, basically, what happened to you? And what, what are we going to do about it? Well, uh, I, I first let me say that... Um, it's because of you, John, and reconnecting with you in the wake of, of, of an experience I had over the summer uh, and reading your book and, uh, and deep diving into The Glenn Show and learning about your discourse with each other, sometimes cantankerous, often delightful and warm and, 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 uh, and truly inquisitive in the best intellectual tradition uh, and learning about something that I really didn't know a whole lot about. Uh, and I feel like I came to my experience over the summer with a really fresh perspective. I spent COVID lockdown taking care of my mother who had Alzheimer's and was living with me during lockdown to keep her safe and, and everything. And it was 24 seven, uh, as most caregivers uh, will tell you. And so I wasn't on Twitter and I haven't been on Twitter in five years. And now everybody's quitting Twitter. I'm like, <laughs> I told you, you know, Gore Vidal said that, what is it, the four most beautiful words in, the, in, in our common language, I told you so. <laughs> but I wasn't in that echo chamber that followed, I, I certainly followed uh, the George Floyd atrocity and the, and the uh, protest and the movement that came up in its wake. Um, 
but I didn't know to the extent that it was um, affecting the way institutions were restructuring and certainly the way uh, Actors' Equity Association, which is the theater union for actors and stage managers that I've been a member of for 32 years, how they were responding and how uh, black uh, theater people were responding. And it it's interesting because I went into lockdown in March 2020. I was doing a show in Florida. I was playing the lead in La Caja Fall, which is a big, glitzy musical. And we closed after eight performances. And I came back oh. to New York and went into lockdown. And so that's March. And then by June, Equity had issued its Black Lives Matter uh, uh, mission statement and had brought in some new personnel and had decided to do open access membership in order to increase the numbers of diverse uh, uh, and marginalized groups uh, in equity, representation in equity. And uh, what what's, the reason I'm saying this as a prelude is the theater has always been at the forefront of representation. And in terms of finding new uh, uh, ways to celebrate diversity, to foster uh, uh, playwrights of color, to, to acknowledge theaters. We have, we have an awarded equity that's given every year to a theater that has developed uh, diverse uh, programming and has featured um, the stories of marginalized groups. So we're really kind of in there. Uh, there's always more to do. Um, and I think audience development is going to be key going forward. But that's that's part of the conversation. So anyway, the long and short of it is I, I was not up on Mr. Kendi and Ms. D'Angelo. And I really didn't know what anti-racist meant in the parlance of the new woke. Uh, I didn't know what that was. So it's interesting. And I hadn't, I hadn't worked in 29 months. You know, the entire theater industry was shut down. We had 100% unemployment. Uh, we almost lost our health trust fund because it's all employer contributions. Um, and in the midst of this, we had this diversity and inclusion initiative, which gave people the opportunity to join equity without a job. Typically, you would get into actors' equity either being, by being offered a contract, uh, and I, that's how I got in. The theater had a non-pro ratio. They had a certain number of professional contracts, and then they had local hires who were non-union, and they hadn't fulfilled their, their quota of professionals, and I was given a contract and, and brought into the union. But the other way was through the equity membership candidate program where you would work at professional theaters as a non-union person, learn your craft, and earn points towards your card and eventually get your card. And what Equity, you know, looked at, they, they looked at the fact that over 60% of the membership was white and that most of our regional theaters were owned and operated by white people. And they extrapolated that there were more white members of equity because they were getting hired by the white producers at a greater rate than people of color. And that's not fair. And uh, it's, it's regrettable. Uh, but now anybody can join equity without experience, without training, without a lot of things. I'm not saying that diverse people don't have training. <laughs> and I'm not saying that it's a bad thing. Uh, I just, I looked at it as, okay, we're broke. 
We don't know when the industry is coming back. And this makes sense. We need more people. We need more dues paying members of the union. But there used, there used to, well, I think there still is. There's a discussion board on, on uh, Facebook for Actors' Equity members only. It's a closed chat board. And I was on it for a long time. And it, it, it sometimes got, you know, we're theater people, you know, and it, and it got cantankerous around certain issues. And then this diversity initiative came with the open access thing. And I went on there and I said, okay, all right, that makes sense, yes. Um, but also, we need the money. And I was like, and we don't make the jobs. Actors and stage managers don't make the jobs. And if there's a hiring bias towards hiring more white people than, than others, we don't make that, we don't do that. So uh, bringing more people in is just going to create a bigger pool of unemployed people, is what I said. And I went to post something very well thought out, but pretty, you know, I have my $5 words too, you know, and... Uh, as soon as I went to post it, this little thing came up that said, would you rather frame that as a question? Mm. And I went, no. Maybe you should think about what you're going to... Mm, no. <laughs> and I realized, wow, we're being monitored. We're being censored. Mm. Didn't like it at all. Quit the, the message board. Mm. Wait a minute. Let me but make sure I, I understand. Mm. You, you posted a message and then there was a... Post it. But before, before it could I be posted, it was a filter. Yeah. yeah, a filter. Yeah. And I thought, okay. well, wait okay. a minute, we can't have a conversation. Okay. So I, this is the only reason I, I, I say all of this is to just, just to say that it's been coming in terms of what is permissible and, and where the ideology is, is, is guiding things. Mm -hmm. I want to say that equity has responded to my questions in the wake of what I experienced over the summer. I wasn't sure how the response would be. I was afraid to ask a question, which I think is insane. Um, but they've been great, really great. Um, and they addressed my concerns. Of, I, I think Mr. Kendi is simplistic in a dangerous way. And I think that... Uh, Ms. D'Angelo is going to have a lot to answer for uh, because she set up a psychological abuse situation for people. I want to hear workplace. more about that, Jamie, uh, but yeah. I think John needs to refresh his page. Okay. Uh, so he has logged off. He'll be back momentarily. Okay. I just want to say to you guys, you know, I, I, I was Thanks, coming John. back from Thanksgiving up in, up in uh, Woodstock, New York, and I was on the bus and I listened to... Uh, the Don Baton podcast again, and I listened to um, the most recent uh, conversation you guys had about theater. And it made me upset that this professional in his field had to be in cognito just to talk about some things that concerned him. And I was mm -hmm. thinking about, I saw 92nd Street Y with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the late, great Ruth Bader Ginsburg, where she was extolling this thing of blind auditions for orchestras because women were being barred entry into orchestras. And it was this great thing. And it, it, it identified a bias and it corrected it in, in a large way. And now that's being changed. And I'm thinking, mm, 
okay. And this is something you're not allowed to talk about as yourself. And I thought, you know, and John and I talked about my coming out because he's he's encapsulated my experience in a in a <laughs> incredibly artful and uh, anonymous way. And we talked a lot about com- my coming on here and what did the I leave anything out, Danny? By the way, yeah, I mean, well, here's I what I'm there. Say. And I'm beginning yes. to make up the story myself, and it's becoming no, a, no, no, a little, no, 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 no. No, I think you were right. I mean, I just want to, I want, I want to share with people a little bit. I, I first want to say that this theater where this happened, uh, I've done five shows there. I consider these people family. They're beautiful people who just want to do great work. They're creating wonderful cultural uh, community, and uh, they really, they're well supported, and people love them. And mm-hmm. I grew up with this theater in my life. And so, okay. okay. So they're doing the best they can Mm. at this theater to, to just try to navigate things. The thing we have to remember is we haven't been open that long. Uh, The theater really hasn't been open, but maybe a year. And, um, and they're just trying to get back on their feet. And a lot of theaters closed during COVID and some reopened, like there's a theater in Florida I've worked at a bunch of times. They reopened, they did this big opening production, then there was another wave of COVID and they canceled the rest of their season and they're just starting up again. Uh, this is costly. It's just really hard and, and they're just doing their best. So I was doing a show and it's a jukebox music, it's probably the original jukebox musical. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think John, you encapsulated. There's a there's a couple of of episodes in this uh, story that deal with race and the crossover uh, between white musicians and black musicians and cross cultural marriage. And you've got your leading character marries, and it's a true story. Marries a Latina, and uh, it's a wonderful relationship that's shown with some resistance from his family. It takes place at a particular time in history. And there's this scene where the the new wife is in the recording studio and the producer's wife starts making jokes about her ethnicity. And the thing that is a disconnect for me, and this is something that I really want to touch on, and I shouldn't be going on about other things because this is the thing. The scene itself would have been a release and a, a, a statement. It is a statement against racism. Uh, and the Latina character triumphs in this scene. She says, hey, you don't get to do that. You don't get to do that. You, th- you think I don't know what you're talking about? I, I, I speak English. Thank you very much. It's and all right she there tells on the yeah. Oh, yeah. It's in the scene. And consequently, uh, this, the leading character takes his wife and says, come on, let's get out of here, and breaks ties with his producer. With and whom the audience always collapses at this part. Yeah. 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 It's- I mean, it's a, it's a moment of no, you don't get to be a racist, right? And instead, you know, we're in rehearsal. And granted, a lot of this happened with all the company in the room. And there's a scene going on. And... The scene stopped because the actress, the Latina actress, started berating this white actress because she wasn't being ugly enough in her bigotry in the scene. It was early days in rehearsal. The director was standing right there and really didn't guide this. 
And uh, this white actress was struggling with playing a bigot. I don't see that that is... That's supposed to be agility in a way. Yeah. Well, I just think you're, you know, uh, anyway... And she was getting chewed out by this other actor. And you just don't give another actor a note. It's and the director just, kind of just stands there and watches this. Let it so happen. It yeah, I didn't really get it uh, until later. Um, I didn't really know what was going on. And then the white actress starts to cry, uh, feeling kind of put upon, and everybody's watching this happen. And from out of nowhere, one of the other BIPOC members of the cast starts screaming. And I'm talking unhinged levels of shrieking, gets up, charges over, gets in this woman's face and says, you're not the victim. Stop crying. This isn't about you. This is not about you. This is about her. You just, you know. Right out of the playbook. Wow. This is D'Angelo. Just completely unhinged. And there were three or four people just sort of screeching at at this actress who's in tears. And the director's standing there and... All of it is... And so... I didn't know style. that this was a thing. I didn't know what a disruption incident that was or a triggering a incident. Yeah. So I, the, the reason that I'm telling this story is not to throw anybody under the bus because I truly think that people think they're doing the right thing. They do. I truly think that they believe that they're doing the right thing. But how do you do a social project without everybody being in on it? I, I just didn't understand what was going on. And I didn't know that this was a thing. So I'm thinking, why isn't anybody managing this? We don't do this to each other as actors in the workplace. A break was called. We all went away for half an hour. We were called back in. And then there was a circle up that happened to talk about what happened. And it proceeded to turn into a crying and sobbing and trauma confessions and things from actors not in the scene, not involved, you know, young uh, BIPOC uh, people who are still in college, who are doing their summer stock thing, sobbing and crying about how traumatic it is for them to walk into a rehearsal studio that's full of white people and how wounding that is. And, And I'm sitting there going, what is going on? I don't understand what's going on. Now, our director was a person of color, uh, a man who really is terrific director, uh, a man of integrity, uh, and he he was ostensibly monitoring this conversation, but just sort of let it play out. And I didn't know that my job as a white person was to be quiet and Mm -hmm. to be present in the in the face of this expression of trauma and to to yeah to be silent Mm -hmm. which is hard for me anyway as you've already probably (laughs) surmised and i'm sitting there going yeah but let's talk about professionalism and let's talk about how we don't give each other notes so i was trying to bring it back to the work because to me when things start to get personal and there's a lot of ancillary things being brought into a situation where we all have to work together that's why we have a union that's why we have certain protocols that better accepted. And, I, and I'm sitting there going, there's one director in a show, and he's right over here, and we don't do that. And they sneered at me. I had these young people sitting there like this. Do you know the beginning of To Sir With Love? 
Remember to serve with love. And Sidney Poitier walks into his inner city London school with a bunch of indolent, you know, working class Cockney kids. And they're all Mm -hmm. sitting there like, it was like that. And I'm saying things like, you know, we're union members. We're members of a union. And they're like, union. And I'm like, so I came to the defense of this white actress. And I said, look, from my own experience in this show, I played this sort of good old boy Texan. And I had to say colored people three times. And on the first day of rehearsal, when I had this scene, I connected with the director. I said, how should this land? How do we want the audience to feel about my character in today's climate with this particular term? And we had a conversation about it and we found a way to do it artfully and in a way that the audience would be okay with it. And I wasn't worrying about people of color in the audience. I was worrying about the white folks getting like, oh, I don't know if I should be here with them, you know, because that's where we're at, right? We are very much dealt with it. Yeah, we dealt with it artistically. And I thought, you know, that's the way to do it. So I related a story about a show that I did uh, back in 2015. I was lucky enough to be part of a, a, a sort of a staged reading of a new musical called Loving Versus Virginia. And Loving versus Virginia was obviously, it was about the Loving case, which overturned the anti-miscegenation laws in America. And the musical was written by Marcus Gardley, uh, uh, Obama's poet laureate. Uh, the music was by Justin Ellington. It was directed by wonderful Patricia McGregor. Um, and I was brought in as one of a, a little three or four white characters in this mostly people of color, wonderful piece, very confrontational about race. And I was cast as the redneck sheriff who was the personification of evil. And I had to spit tobacco and say the N-word, you know, ad nauseum. And I had to try and rape. Did you really have to spit tobacco? Know, mis- I, well, not really. <laughs> I minded, but, but he was this flat out bigot. Mm-hmm. unapologetic, unflinching. And that was not easy for me. And what was interesting about it was we did our first read through table read and this cast, I got to tell you guys, I was a fan of some of these people. I mean, we had some of the great people of color of the American theater in this cast. And I'm like, yeah, you know, and then we do the read through. And for the next week of rehearsal, the people of color avoided me. Like they, outside of rehearsal, and it it was this weird, like, that's not really me, right? So we're <laughs> sitting there having lunch one day, uh, and I'm in the rehearsal room, and some people left the room, and I was there with a few of the, uh, of the people of color in the cast, and they were on their phones. It was all very quiet, and I'm going, let me start a conversation <laughs> somehow. And there's a wonderful actress in the show. Her name is Carmen Ruby Floyd. And I don't know if you saw uh, After Midnight when that was on Broadway. But it was this sort of cotton club, like, capturing that era. And Mm -hmm. Carmen, uh, she stole the show. She sang Creole Love Call. And she actually sang it on the Tonys, I believe. And yes, yes. And she's just glorious. And I turned to her and I just said, hey, Carmen's a really unusual name. 
how did you get the name Carmen? And she went, well, my mother was a fan of, of Carmen McRae. Right, right. And I went, oh my God, she was one of my mother's favorites. My mother was into jazz because her father was into it. And my mom's a first generation Ashkenazi Jew, you know, daughter of immigrants. Bless you, sir. And Thank she's you. a jazz, jazz fan. So I grew up surrounded by this music. And within five, 10 minutes, Carmen and I and a couple of the other people in the room started having this amazing, lively conversation about Billie Holiday and Ella Fitzgerald and Nina Simone and all of these people. And I'm like, this is my childhood, you know? So the reason I mention this is because I had, as part of this circle up at this theater, I said, you know, I had to play somebody even worse than that, that hurt my spirit to have mm -hmm. to do that. It hurt, and but it was my job. And my, my job is to embody things that are uncomfortable. That's what actors do. And I don't understand this whole thing of people being so fragile that they can't. That's your job. That's your job. So I brought this up, and I said, and it was very hard for me, particularly because my sister was black. My sister was six months old when she was adopted. I was four. And I grew up with a sister who was a person of color. And I've got two beautiful nieces and a nephew who are different shades of, of beautiful brown people. That's my family. And I brought this out and I said, this felt very difficult for me. And one of these actors says to me, you know, you didn't have to bring up your sister. And I said, excuse me, you shouldn't use your sister as a prop. And I said, well, that's when I leave the room. And I got up and I left. God. Because I didn't know my job was to sit there and be silent. And Jamie, I want to interject by that. This yeah, is, um, <laughs> folks, what you're listening to is now a norm. This is not an eccentric story being told by one person. You are getting a vivid exposure to something that in the theater world is now a norm. And if anybody wants to say that people like Glenn and me are <clears throat> making up this attack on wokeness and that really we ought to be thinking about other things, that there's nothing significant going on, that all that's going on is that bad people are being held to account. How many people think that Jamie needed to be held to account for anything that he did? This is not about bad people being held to account. This is about a hostile religion <laughs> taking over the way we think, the way we perform, the way that we reason. And this is real. Now, January 6th was real too. Book bannings are real too. Anybody who thinks that this is not important and that we should only be talking about Glenn Youngkin has a very narrow view of what it is to be a nation and what it is to be human beings. Jamie, continue. Well, no, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. And, I, and because I didn't know that this was a phenomenon, and now since then, I've heard from many, many, many actors that I know uh, that this is commonplace, and particularly in moments where there's something that's racially charged in the piece. Uh, anything having to do with slavery. I don't know if you remember the Juilliard thing that happened. Where, Which one? Uh, the yes. Michael McElroy. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, this is a thing. Uh, Juilliard School, like elite, the elite undergraduate acting program in the country, coveted, 
program, graduates like Viola Davis. And, you know, like it's a panoply of stars that have come out of Juilliard, which is really the reason to go to an undergraduate acting training program, because the the degree is not necessarily going to get you anywhere, but the affiliation might open some doors in the industry. It's just the way it's always been. You know, the theater's not fair. I don't know why people are looking for fairness in show business. <laughs> what happened? What happened in the Juilliard incident? Well, it's an interesting story, but but basically what happened was it was the beginning of a new school year and they were still in lockdown and they were working by Zoom and a wonderful uh, black performer named Michael McElroy um, created this course called um, Roots, Roots to Rep. And it was an overview of black musical styles in America from slavery up. And he created this experience at the front end of this workshop that included an audio, uh, a sort of a landscape, soundscape of what it meant to be enslaved in Africa, in chains, led to a ship, put on a ship. And it was all this sort of experiential thing. Every trigger warning was issued well in advance. The N-word will be spoken, this, that. He even gave a video, sort of a, 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 a preface to it. He's a black performer, and now he's the head of the musical theater department at University of Michigan and a wonderful and artist. Yet, and yet, despite all of yeah. this, in this post-2020 atmosphere, what happened? Well, what happened is this. Uh, everybody knew this was going to happen. All of the students, white, black, other, uh, were given a writing assignment about slavery in advance of the class that they had to do. And this one young performer, student, who was the head of the Black Student Union, was, un according to interviews with her, she was uneasy about the whole thing from the get-go, but she didn't say anything because she's a student and she doesn't know and she's going to do it. It doesn't, it doesn't bear scrutiny, in my opinion. Ask a question. You're, in, you're a student. You know, if you're uncomfortable with something, you want to know how it's going to be framed. Michael McElroy was completely transparent about that this is maybe challenging. We, it will require vulnerability, etc. The thing happens. They're experiencing this thing, and they used a scene from Roots, 1977, miniseries Roots, slave auction scene with the dialogue from that in order to evoke this feeling of the thing. Which for us was very educational. Roots, and you know, everybody watched it. You it was mainstream. Yeah, that was how you learned about these things. But not yeah. now, because apparently, continue. <laughs> well, they, this, this young actress and some others who were uh, people of color who were on this Zoom class were upset about this. And they felt that they had been violated, that they were being used, that their experience, their, their, their racial identity was being trampled on, and that this was a bridge too far and that they're not safe at this school and Juilliard is racist. Um, and they flipped out, basically. And she put up a video online that was, uh, well, you can see it for yourself. But um, uh, she, she basically said, I am traumatized by this. I feel that I have been, you know, uh, abused by this situation. Juilliard needs to correct itself, et cetera. Tellingly, Mr. McElroy didn't do any interviews about it. He didn't issue any statements. His class was canceled. 
the class had been done before. So it's not like he didn't have a track record, but the class was, was discontinued. And Damien Wetzel, who's a former principal ballet dancer with the New York City Ballet, who runs the entire Juilliard School, he and the head of the Juilliard Drama Division issued uh, statements apologizing for the harm that was caused and how they will correct these things in the future and et cetera. Uh, and and to that, is, no, no harm was caused. We all know that that young woman, I know nothing about her, but on that, she's acting, so to speak. It's a performance. She wasn't harmed at all. And yet these serious adults are pretending to take her seriously, which if you ask me is almost Mm -hmm. a form of racism in itself. And this sort of thing Mm -hmm. is happening all the time, including at Juilliard. You know, this is the tippy top. This is is the creme de la creme. It's elite. Engaging in this play acting with people faking their trauma. This will not do, and it is new. The extent of this is new. It's not an accident that this happened then. It's not an accident that this happened on Zoom. I think we tend to forget how easy the Zoom and the Slack made it to perform in this way because we weren't up into each other's faces. But then notice what happened to you with that jukebox musical, and that was live. But a lot of this was seeded in the performativity of, of Zoom and Slack. But my goodness, this stuff shakes this stuff shakes my well, soul. Well, what bothers me about it is, John, you know this as a theater person and as a theater, uh, uh, somebody who's invested in theater and loves it. Our job is to take it. This triggering thing to me is disingenuous. We train ourselves to be triggerable. Yes. That's our job. Our job is to go there mm-hmm. and to take on things that are hard and 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 to express them and to embody them and that's the courageousness of acting and you would think in this moment now there were i wonder i don't know but i wonder if there weren't white students on the call as well and if that top leadership of the school weren't white if this would have occurred if this were a separate situation and it were a black theater company doing a workshop on slavery and the thing and it was all black people i don't know that people would be as triggered highly unlikely it's a performance in in the face of white people yes and it's also it's this thing of propriety it's saying it's saying uh this is our stuff this belongs to us you're not allowed to just to explore this white folk because this is our stuff. It's deep trauma and we are not being protected. We are not being uh, uh, guarded from this kind of uh, exploitation. And I thought, well, 1619 Project? <laughs> Do we not want to educate people on the horrors of slavery and genocide? It's damned if you do, damned if you don't. And yeah. to say that this is ours, you can imagine the endorphins going through the people's brains. They are enjoying the sense that they're part of a tribe. Well, that's what I felt in the room. It felt Bolshevik this summer. The attitudes of these young folk felt they were sneering at professionalism. I was talking about how I've been doing this for 32 years and, you know, this is there. There's a reason we do things the way we do. And they're like, you could try not lecturing us. I'm quoting. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, OK. But to me, theater in the West. And we're all in the same fish tank. You know, this is the other thing people forget. These kids grew up in the same culture. You know, it's like uh, and now there's this all of this stuff about we shouldn't have to do Shakespeare and we shouldn't have to learn standard American speech because that's white. And really? 
Tell that to Aussie Davis. Tell that to Sidney Poitier. Tell that mm-hmm. to James Baldwin for one of the most eloquently, mellifluous, beautifully articulate speakers of English who grew up. Paul, Paul Robeson. Paul Robeson. Yeah. My mother yeah. saw Paul Robeson as Othello oh, at wow. Stratford in the 50s opposite really? Mary Urie. And at I'm, the time, they weren't, wouldn't have been able to do it on Broadway because it was yeah. interracial. Sammy, this is a quick, a quick thing. This is, yes. this is a theater in-group thing that I just want to ask quickly. It's said, and Paul Robeson is a great hero, he's a great singer, yeah. great life, a lot of unfairness. It's said that the truth is that live, he actually wasn't that great an actor. <laughs> I have huge respect for the man. Did your mother mention that he couldn't really act or did she say he was a great actor? <laughs> I just My mother said that he was an amazing presence that he came okay. on stage and he had this grandeur, but that he sang his lines, which was not uncommon. Interesting. But he, she used to do an impression of him. And uh, I, 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 I'm going to do this for you guys <laughs> because I know who my mother was and I know who I am. Uh, she, she used to do him uh, going, Oh, Desdemona. You know, he had this cent- <laughs> sort of stentorian kind of like, like, uh, but that was not uncommon in the 50s for Shakespeare no, acting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but he had a stature. He yeah. represented something like Marian Anderson. There's a yeah. musical coming out of Marian Anderson, finally. Like, what took him so long? And a wonderful uh, actor and producer uh, and now director, uh, Tamara Tooney is directing it. I worked for Tamara several years ago on a new musical called Frog Kiss, which truly was this amazing sort of rainbow of different ethnicities, different musical styles. And it was directed by Kenny Roberson. He was a Broadway veteran. And he and Tamara had done uh, the all-black OK on Broadway in the 70s. And so they were tappers together. And it was just like this amazing room full of, of, of veteran people, you know, bringing this truly colorblind, but also ethnically diverse celebratory kind of show. It didn't make it, but they're finally doing Marian Anderson. Um, my point well, being... Jamie, for the, for the record, for reasons yeah. of time, we have to go yes. on to the, the off-ramp. By the way, folks, OK is a Gershwin musical, 1925, Someone to Watch Over Me. There was an all-black <laughs> version that for some yes. reason didn't quite work. I've always wished that I could go back in time and see it. Me Brian too, me too. But, oh, um, really? Yeah, a young, a baby Brian. But, I guess um, the point I'm making about this whole thing is these are protest, uh, uh, protest demonstrations of angst, not unlike the temperance movement back a hundred years ago where people would do moralistic melodrama things uh, that were spontaneous and they would depict, you know, uh, the ruination of, of immoral behavior and alcoholism and stuff. And to me, it's, it's bypassing all the incredible richness of what we do. This is what we do. And we this show matters. things and this we invest in them. So continue. Yes. Jamie, you know, I have I, a question. I, I know oh, we're getting near the end of our interview with Jamie. Um, and the question is, where are the adults? Who's in charge? Where, where's the vision within your profession? Re- realizing that the artistry is being compromised by this politicalization 
and speak up. Can you be the only one? You can't be the only one. <laughs> well, listen, I, you know, is, I, there a, is there a push back against this or are you all alone? Are people getting impatient? Oh, boy. Um, white people are afraid to say anything. I mean, I reached out to friends who were in leadership at the union who were white and they just basically said, yeah, I hear you. I have no answers. Uh, the producers that I was working for that yeah. where I witnessed this stuff were like, yes, I hear you. They're afraid to say anything. They just are. And that's just the truth of it. Because we bought into this thing of you're not allowed an opinion. This whole lived experience thing. It's like, I have a lived experience too. I mean, I I just, you didn't live through slavery. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like, yes, it's a deep, deep wound in in your ancestry. It's a horrible, inhuman thing that you've had to rise above. And we're still trying to work through it. And it needs to be worked through. But that's what we do. We have a conversation about the hard things and we embody it in a human way so that the audience can experience it through us. And we're supposed to be courageous together. Mm -hmm. And I'm all for being part of a social project. And I wrote this to the diversity and inclusion person at Equi who's been terrific about providing resources and appreciating my my point of view. Because the truth of the matter is, our union has explicit language in every rule book of every contract against blacklisting and against harassment and bullying in the workplace. And the the coda to this, which you uh, uh, wrote about in your column, in your uh, newsletter, and spoke about on this podcast, was that after this circle up, after this demonstration of whatever happened, I came back into the room to go back into rehearsal, and for the rest of the run, the people of color in the show did not speak to me. They didn't speak to me. We, we each had our own individual chairs on the perimeter of the rehearsal space with our names on them, and every time I went back to my chair, it was piled up with people's stuff, very passive aggressive. And one of the actors, the one that had made the biggest fuss, uh, was my car mate. And we had just spent like 10 days getting to know each other and going on grocery runs and having dinner together and wouldn't drive with me anymore. And I went to the producers, I sent an email to the producers because I didn't know this was a phenomenon. And I said, I'm, if this happens again and there's another kumbaya circle, I say that with a lot of irony, I will not participate and I should not have to submit to this kind of, of abusive behavior as a professional actor at this theater, period. Mm-hmm. And they were not able to, they're, they're, ham, they're hamstrung. And you know something, folks, anybody who is watching this and thinking that what Jamie is saying is invalidated by the fact that he's a middle-aged and white person, any of you who are thinking that, that's going to come up in the comments, et cetera, any of you who are thinking that, you need to understand you're caught up in a cult. You are caught up in a way of thinking that history is not going to be kind to. Mm. Jamie is correct, and a part of you knows it. The fact that he's middle-aged and white does not make him wrong. He has said not a single incorrect thing, including briefly imitating Paul Robeson. Get over it. Just get over it. And let's go back to 2019. Imitating his mother imitating Paul Robeson. That's my mother doing Paul Robeson. Yes. Um, I just think, you know, 
Oh, it's my pleasure. And, you know, I, I, I have yes, what I thanks. call verbal diarrhea. Uh, it's, you know, my parents were great extemporaneous speakers. And if you didn't learn how to, like, have a stream of, you wouldn't get a word in edgewise. Uh, but I, I do want to say one last thing to you guys. First of all, thank you for just encouraging conversation. Because this is the reason I don't do social media stuff about anything important anymore. What you're doing is about conversation, debate, challenging ideas. This is what we should be doing. And you're fighting the good fight. And all I can say about the theater is I love the theater. I spent my life in it. My parents were in it. My father was worked in academia, teaching set design for 30 years at Boston University. I come from a theater family. We lived on food stamps. My mother was a single mom raising three kids, keeping a mortgage and starting her own little theater company in our hometown. We privileged, not so much. But have I been privileged to work in my industry and in my craft? Yes. And I want everybody to have that opportunity. But the work has to be of quality the way in which we represent race and the way that we change our ideas about casting needs to be less sloganeering and less confrontation and more creativity and opening people's minds. You know, it's okay to have a black death of a salesman. It really is, except we need to recognize that for someone like me, who's a second generation Jewish American, death of a salesman is a classic of the American Jewish repertoire by a first-generation Jewish-American playwright who was dealing with certain issues. Can it be embodied by a Black cast? It clearly is. Wendell Pierce is a genius. He's a great actor. And we should have these things. Do we need a 1776 of the kind that you wrote about in your... I, <laughs> I don't know. I'm not even going to see it. <laughs> but I played John Adams in that show, and I it's very close to my heart. And I know we you want know, to get rid of the founding fathers and yeah. colonialism, and but we're Americans. <laughs> we are. Thank you for letting me blather on and on. And John, you know, you were fully formed when we were 16 <laughs> years old. I was saying to Glenn before the call, you know, you you were skinnier, which we all were. You had more hair. Which we all I do. do. <laughs> <laughs> but that intellect and that sharpness and that wit and that, and that courage to be yourself is inspiring. It was then. It is now. And I just want to say to my theater brethren, we're going we're gonna to butt heads and there's going to be difficulty, but let's not cancel each other. It's too easy. That's too easy. And Jamie, let's I want to say this. You, Jamie, probably were the main thing that made me a theater person. Being a roommate with you, listening to the music, <laughs> listening to the lore, and then you casting me in the importance of being earnest. I became a theater person because of you, and I will always uh, thank you for that. You were fully formed as well, and you know. <laughs> God and help so, me. I got to tell you guys. In 1983. But, um, it's yeah, it's Jimmy, been an honor to be present at the reunion of these two old friends. <laughs> I can't believe it's been 40 years. <laughs> <laughs> 40 years. Oh, it's oh, enough to, it can be 40 years. And yet I think you look good. You've done good. I'm just schlepping it. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm acting when I can. I am not a household name. And I want you to know, both of you, that 
so many people in my circle, smart, creative, interesting, uh, uh, engaged people of every stripe and color, uh, admire you greatly. And well, thank you for your work. That's good thank to know. You. Jamie, thank you so much. We will keep it going. Okay, good. Jamie, thank good. you. Thank you so much for making time for me. Of course. You bet. That was revelatory. Jamie's passion, his humanity, his uh, dedication to craft, um, his uh, insights and perceptiveness, his vulnerability. Uh, I liked it. I, I learned. I learned from it. And I'm, I'm proud that at the Glenn Show, we could uh, give him a platform to uh, give him a place to voice his, his concerns and his, his observations. Also, as I said, I was delighted to see something of my partner here, my, my partner in crime, John McWhorter's uh, past, of his uh, origins, uh, you know, where, where he's been shaped and formed. They were at Simon Rock College together as students and roommates when they were nothing but teenagers. Um, and here we are 40 years later. Um, and uh, you and I got to witness their reunion, so that was terrific. We're here the weekend after Thanksgiving. Uh, the Lowry household enjoyed a wonderful uh, family meal. Uh, my lovely wife, whom you will see next week when the debut of Lawan Lowry at the Glenn Show takes place. Uh, we are um, going to post the debate between myself and Marxist economist Richard Wolff. Uh, Rick Wolf and I go at it over the relative merits of capitalism and socialism. I'm defending capitalism, he's defending socialism, and the entire exchange is moderated by my lovely wife, Lawan Lowry, and uh, we we rented the studio to get a high quality in person uh, recording video of that exchange, and that'll be posted next at the Glenn Show. So stay tuned. We have big plans for the talented and passionate and vivacious Lawan Lowry. Big plans for her. Okay, John. Yeah. Wow. That was that was a really interesting exchange. Yes, that was wild. And um I have not spoken with him live since 1983. Yeah. So that was that was very interesting. Anyway, are we gonna do what are we gonna do? Systemic racism? Well, yeah, let's do the systemic racism. Because I let me first of all correct me if I get this wrong. I've read your columns. You want to stop saying structural racism. You want to say in, inequities uh, in reference to disparities of social and economic outcomes uh, disadvantageous to African-Americans. So it's, it's, you know, achievement gap in schooling, the wealth gap in the economy, uh, whatever you want to say in equities, but you don't want to say structural racism. Mm -hmm. And I think let me it's see again if. It's a stretched use of the word 
I've always found it rather confusing, and I think it's manipulative because it allows you to say racism, which kind of goes to your amygdala and creates a certain kind of response. You're fighting racism as if it's one of the characters in the plays we were just talking about, <clears throat> when really we're talking about something that may have been caused by racism, but today will be solved by something more complicated than addressing bigotry and prejudice, which is what racism sounds like. So this distinction between historical uh, fact of racism and contemporary disparities is uh, what you want to call attention to. And talking about contemporary disparities is if we were say, seeing simply a straightforward presentation of good old fashioned historical American racism yeah. is a mistake. Mm -hmm. uh, and you, you, uh, and, and here's where I have a question, or maybe even a disagreement. You say um, people don't want it to be said that it's the fault of blacks that they lag behind. It's not their fault. It's the fault of historical racism. Mm -hmm. But what is to be done about the fact that they slash we mm -hmm. lag behind might be very, very different from. Uh, an anti-racism crusade. It, it might involve uh, getting out of the war on drugs, uh, teaching reading to black kids using phonics, mm -hmm. or uh, vocational. vocational education for, mm -hmm. you know, you had your list of things. Mm -hmm. And I, I chafed a little bit at the claim that, hmm. well, because Omar makes you sad, Omar makes me mad. I want to make Omar responsible for what happens in his life. Oh, okay. Yeah. If, if Omar is running around hurting people, abandoning his responsibilities, not taking care of his children, not putting his nose to the grindstone, it is his fault. Mm. It's not his fault that he was dealt the hand by history that he was dealt, mm -hmm. but it is his fault that he doesn't play it uh, to good effect. Mm. I fear that in conceding with inequities, the word inequity, I have a disparity. It is ipso facto morally problematic. By that, to me, that's a concession. It, it says, wherever I see the disparity, there's nothing that anyone could have done about it they have no responsibility for how they've handled it. And I, I don't want to take the weight entirely off of the individual who finds himself in a difficult circumstance. I, I want to somehow, uh, you know, in, enforce an expectation about yeah. dignified behavior and uh, effective living and, uh, so on. Uh, and that's that's why I, you know, disparity is one thing. Inequity is another. Inequity does suggest that wherever I see the disparity, it is somehow a consequence of historical forces. And uh, that that just takes the weight off of the individual in a way that, I, that, that causes me concern. I fully get it. I, I basically agree with you. Inequity. The way I'm trying to put it, you know, maybe this is the me that people think doesn't want to admit I'm a Republican. It's not that, but the inequity thing, I am trying to break bread with a certain kind of person 
who's just not going to let go of the basic idea that there are these disparities and we must stress that it's not our fault. You don't want to push people too hard. That sounds condescending. And it is. Sorry. But you can't push people too hard. But the further truth, your codicil is correct. It's not our fault. It isn't. However, it is our responsibility, unfortunately, to solve a lot of the problems. And this gets into what I consider Amy Wax, who you know I have my disagreements with lately, but her best formulation is that if somebody runs you over with a truck, unfortunately, only you can teach yourself how to walk again. That is a perfect analogy. And yes, there is that responsibility. Now, I tend in my lists to focus on things that the government can do, matters of policy, rather than saying, Omar, pull up your pants and stop breaking windows. Yes, that is true. And part of the reason is, yes, there's that certain kind of person who, the minute you say anything like that to Omar, stops listening to anything you say. And I've learned that if you don't push that kind of person so hard, every second one of them actually can listen. So it's partly politics. And then it's also that I'm just, there's a certain kind of person who will just say, that's just respectability politics. I'm not sure we can change Omar's behavior. That's the problem. I mean, not sure we can change what? I'm sorry. Omar's behavior. Oh, yeah. Tell Omar you have to do it yourself. And, and unfortunately, he's going to give you the same look as those people Jamie just talked about in the theater, that kind of arms crossed sneer. The idea being that, you know, because the cops don't like black people because of redlining and Jim Crow and slavery, that black responsibility is not a viable topic. It has to all come from the outside. So, yeah, I hear you, though. I, I hear you. It's not our fault doesn't mean that we don't have responsibility for changing things. I didn't mean that. But you're right that I tend not to focus on it in my public messages because I know this person and I'm trying to get them to listen. And there are things that trigger them, such as mentioning that black people have responsibility. Yeah, I admit it. Yeah. Well, um, I hear you. Um, this conference that they had for me earlier this year at Brown honoring my career, et cetera, which you attended, bless you. Uh, do you remember the remarks that Ron Ferguson made? My friend, my old friend, Ronald Ferguson, the economist, he's a yes. professor at the Kennedy School at, at Denver, Harvard. Yeah. And, and he basically said, yeah, Glenn, I, I see what you're saying, uh, you know, with your criticism of uh, the Ibram X. Kendys of the world and whatnot, and your criticisms of the Omars of the world, I see what you're saying. I don't like structural racism as a category either, but... Are you moving the needle? This is Ron to me. Are you, are you changing anybody's mind or are you just basically, uh, you know, sh shouting into the ether, you know, you know, wailing against your fate when the people whom you would have uh, react differently can't hear you, can't hear a word that you're saying. And this uh, strategic question of whether or not you temper the sharp edges of your criticism in order to allow it to be more palatable and uh, not to be rejected out of hand and, and so on. Uh, so that's yeah, something for me to think about. I want to introduce a character. I, she's always in my mind and we, we've got Omar. 
there's somebody else who we need to be able to refer to in in short time. Like Simone is the serious undergraduate who you know has yeah. questions. Donna. Donna is an educated black woman of about 50. She is a well-read professional, and she hates us. Or maybe she can cock half an ear to us, but basically she thinks in terms of racism is everywhere, respectability politics, conservatives are evil, Clarence Thomas is evil, um, Amiri Baraka was a hero, that kind of person. Donna is very smart, she's very cultured, but she sits there with her arms crossed. She doesn't like the cut of our jib. But on a good day, Donna can at least listen. Donna can at least hear that we are not actually bad people. Donna, I'm often thinking, how do I avoid setting off Donna? And I have a very concrete vision of her in my mind. I know Donna. You know, you can't help but know Donna if you're an academic in particular. So just, yeah, what would, what would Donna think? And can Donna hear you? And there's some things where just using a certain term shuts Donna down. And so I am often thinking of Donna. Maybe I need to give up on Donna. But then you get Ron Ferguson asking that question. So that's, that's, that's the issue. What does Donna think? I'm often thinking of Donna when I write. Can I get through to Donna? So yeah, maybe you just don't care about Donna. How do you feel about Donna? So <laughs> in that uh, set of remarks that Ron made, which by the way, uh, we published today at the newsletter, uh, glennlarry.substack, Ron Ferguson's remarks. Hmm. Uh, he, he, he quotes me as saying, Someone, someone puts a similar question to me in an interview when Ron references the interview as saying, if I were an artist and I produced a work of art, you wouldn't ask me how I felt about what people were going to say about it. You just take it as either true or profound or insightful or revelatory or not. And my gut instinct is to say, I'm not going to temper and, you know, compromise. I'm going to speak my truth. Donna can deal with it as she deals with it. I'm going to, I'm going to say what I think is, is the, is, is true. Um, so I, I hesitate here. I'm, I'm mumbling a little bit because I don't really like my answer. <laughs> <laughs> because the, the retort would be, are you serious? You think, is this just performance? Is this just about you? Mm -hmm. I, I thought you actually wanted to move the needle. I, I thought mm -hmm. you wanted things to be made better. Don't you have a responsibility to um, elaborate a vision about how it is that your insights are going to translate into making things better? It doesn't have to be political. It could be cultural or whatever, but so I, I, I feel that I may be indulging myself a little bit and, I, I, you know, and I want to question the feelings that I have because it's driven by anger. Mm -hmm. I'm mad at Omar. Mm -hmm. It's driven by shame. I'm ashamed of Omar. Mm. Uh, it's driven a little bit by fear. 
what will the future bring? You know, uh, it's driven to some degree by self-aggrandizement. I'm the truth seer. I'm the one who says the emperor has no clothes. Look at me, look at me. And uh, I don't know how noble such motivations are. So um, I, I'm afraid I don't have a conclusion here. I'm trying to be open-minded and self-critical. I think more people are listening to me and seeing me as the phony. The idea being that I don't <clears throat> express what I really feel because I'm trying not to offend Donna and I don't want too many people to say mean things about me on Twitter, which is not, not quite what I'm saying. I think we're both engaged in, try to be engaged in trying to change minds. And it's slow, but it, for me, it does mean crafting the message. And um, that does mean that, no, I don't say everything that I think. And that's a kind of politics, and that's the way, that's the way it goes. But there, there are visceral feelings involved here. Language is messy. There's certain terms that go straight to you know, people's midbrains. And so you have to, yeah, I, yes, I edit myself to an extent, definitely. And there is the fact that you and I do have different political ideological uh, centers. Yours mm -hmm. is the left of mine. Mm -hmm. uh, you talk of trickle-down economics, and I think it makes me want to roll my eyes. And me being a conservative economist, pretty, you know, market friendly and you being more of a social Democrat in your orientation. Again, I don't want to mm -hmm. mislabel you. Uh, and we talk about uh, climate change and, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a, a denier of the science, but I am a skeptic of uh, the fervor with which people want to mm -hmm. react by changing basic economic structures. And I, I, you know, I, we have different policy prescriptions about how to react to the, commonly understood fact of, of climate change uh, and other things besides. I mean, you know, I, I look at the sexual and identity and gender revolution that we're living through right now with a little bit of trepidation and unease. It, it, it's unsettling to me. And I, I, I worry about the foundations of our, of our culture and, uh, I think things are off the rails a little bit. I'm not sure you're as, as disturbed by that. And I'm, I'm wondering if, and again, I don't mean to speak for you. You can speak for yourself. But I'm wondering if that difference of political sensibility doesn't also show itself in terms of uh, how we react to uh, the fact of African-American underperformance, so-called social pathology. Those are words I use commonly. I think you'd be loath to use words of that kind. Failure. I talk about the failure of African-Americans to seize the opportunities opened up by the civil rights movement. I don't think you like talking about the failure. Uh, you, you put a more emphasis on the historical determined, uh, factors determining contemporary uh, disparities. I'm maybe more skeptical about that and put more weight on contemporary uh, discretionary reactions that people can deal with there circumstance this way or that, and I want to put responsibility on them for how they make that decision. So we have, diff we have different views. There's, there's some of that, but then there also just is, um, 
I guess I know it comes off as very condescending, but I think it's just true. Like you say failure. It doesn't make me bristle to hear you say that. I know what you mean. But a lot of people don't. And so, for example, think of, and I, you know, we bring these people up too much, but they're iconic symbols. Think about how Ta-Nehisi Coates, or now the new Coates, Ibram Kendi, feel about people like us saying failure and pathology. You know, they just, their jaw sets, they're furious, they write mean things on Twitter, they think of us as, you know, these, these vicious, unfeeling, condescending Uncle Tom. Self-hating. How dare you say failure? Now, I think they need to come off it. I think they need to listen more closely and stop being so tribal and so visceral and stop making it into a cat fight. But the thing is, people like that won't. And I don't mean just those two, but it's just that they have such a public presence. They demonstrate a feeling that a lot of unknown people have. And there's a lot of that in Donna. And so I know where you're coming from, but they don't. And therefore, I figure we have to, you have to pick your battles. But another way of dealing with people like that is to just say, fuck them. And to just keep on telling your truth. There you and are. hoping that other kinds of people will come join you in that truth. Right. And that there are certain people who you're just going to leave behind. That they're just never going to understand. And I get the feeling that you're more inclined towards that. Yeah. Because there's a part of me that thinks that the Kendi fan will listen to me if I just don't say certain things that will set them off, such as saying pathology and failure. I get what you mean, but they can't hear that and they're not going to change. And so you have to grapple with what you've got. Do you think you've changed Donna's mind? Any Donna's out there? Yeah, I know that um, so I'm thinking of a specific Donna, in fact. I know that over the 20 years, Donna's, who are also men, often say that, you know, I used to hate, you know, the stuff that he was saying. But if you listen, he's actually making a certain kind of sense. I, the common thing with me, it would be that if there were a musical about me talking about Jamie, one of my songs would be called I Don't Agree With Everything But. That's what people always say to me. I don't agree <laughs> with everything, but that, that would be a song. But still, they say that as opposed to 20 years ago when the same people often just thought of me as Clarence Thomas's son. I think that progress is important. I think that as you and I know, our message gets across to a wider swath of people now than it used to. But you know, you just have to break that wall down one brick at a time. I don't agree with everything, but <laughs> I'm gonna write I was it. I was heartened uh, to hear Jamie's uh, report that what we do is actually inspirational and comforting um, and, uh, you know, edifying for uh, a lot of people like himself. And those are not uh, Trump voters. Those are, those are liberal Democrats those who, are, people on who the left. are trying to get through this uh, with their integrity intact, not lose their minds in the process. So, Glenn, I've got to go. Yeah, John, I was about to call it quits in any case. So uh, absolutely. Uh, happy belated Thanksgiving to you. <laughs> Same to you. Uh, and yours. And uh, we will connect about the Q&A over email. Definitely.